Hey, we've been in Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, for the last well, eight, eight or so months, seven or eight months, we started in February, and we are now at the last few verses, uh, chapter 6, 21 to 24, where we get uh, some relational information from Paul to the church and a benediction. And it's no wonder that he finishes with love, as we think back through all that he has said, Katie just read to us uh, the first 14 or so verses of chapter 1, that it is all about love, that God has blessed us in the beloved, chosen us before the foundations of the world, redeemed us in Christ's blood, bound us together as one, no longer Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, but we are one in Christ, a new nation. Of course, Paul is going to wrap up his letter in love. But before we read this passage, I want to read to us from Acts 20, where Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. So Acts 20, we're going to read from verse 17. It's a rather large chunk, but I just want us to understand his relationship with the church at Ephesus, uh, how much he cared for them and loved them. So let's read that. I'm going to pray first, uh, and then we'll read. Father God, we thank you so much that we can come to your word. We thank you for this letter that has been so rich for us, that has helped us uh, wrestle through our identity uh, and, and come and find our identity in you and you only. It's helped us analyze our walk, the way we walk, and carefully think about the general areas of life and the more specific areas like family, marriage, parenting, work. And Lord, you've shown us to walk in these areas in our new identity. Our old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations. So Lord, as we wrap this letter up, as we think about love, love for you, love for one another, the love Paul had for the church and the way he ministered to her, Lord, would we imitate that? Fill us with your spirit to comprehend your word, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 20, verse 17. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of, the, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not count my life of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify 
to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of blood of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, paying careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. Therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered my necessity and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown that, my work, that by hard work in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was great weeping on part of all. For they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a gospel goodbye, and the deep love in which we see he had for this church and the people of this church? He, it gives us a context of what he, why he wrote the letter to the Ephesian church. We see uh, many parallels, some of the warnings that he makes that we should not uh, neglect our doctrine, that we should be aware of false teachers, these parallels that come across in the book of Ephesians. And the reason I wanted us to read that is to understand this next passage that we are preaching with more depth, to understand that Paul genuinely cared for the people he ministered to. He had a deep love. It wasn't just words of knowledge or doctrine that he wanted to fill their minds with. He cared for their souls. And we see that in his goodbye. Let's read our passage for today, Ephesians 6, 21-24, and then we'll break it down like we normally do, verse by verse. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that we may encourage you with, encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. These verses are personal concern. It's not theology, the first few verses. It's actually about a relationship that Paul has with his writers. Now, Paul knows, of course, the greatest thing that he can impart to the church is theology. Doctrine of God. We've stated over and over again that doctrine matters. 
The whole of chapter one, to chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians is about doctrine. Who is God and who are we and how are we saved? And he articulates it so clearly for us to understand. And then he goes on to say, well, if this is who you are, in chapter 4, work worthy, work, walk worthy of your calling. If this is all that God has instructed you in, if this is, if this is how God has created you, now you must walk differently. Your life has changed. And for chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see that our life has changed by Christ and our new identity changes the way we live. And he goes on to impart wisdom about how to live in a sinful world with the flesh, but now with Christ and the Spirit living in us. And he finishes his last section with this cry of be ready for battle, be ready for war against Satan, the schemes of the devil. So he fills their minds with doctrine, he fills their mind with theology, and he fills them with practical outworkings of how to live in this new identity. But he doesn't want to just stop there. He, he, doesn't want to, he doesn't want to leave it there because he has a relationship with these people. He cares about them. We saw that in Acts 20. They cried on the beach together. They wept. They said goodbye and knew that they would never see his face again. And what we see is that Paul, in his ministry, is deeply relational. He's not a professional. He doesn't say, oh, I'm Paul the Apostle, only professional here, I'll impart wisdom to you and that's it. I'm, I'm, I've got a, a practitioner's uh, relationship with you. He doesn't believe that he's uh, got to keep a confidentiality between him and his church. No, they're, they're one in Christ. He's merely acting as a member of the church, a member of the body. His role is to be a teacher and to lead and to set the example, but he also wants to be vulnerable and allow these people to minister to him. If you continue on in Acts, you will see that the next people Paul comes to warn him and say, you're going to get bound, you're going to get chained, you're going to be in jail if you go to Jerusalem. And sure enough, that is what happens. He allows people to minister to him. Paul's not caught up on his skill. He's not puffed up in the fact that he's a great communicator or a skilled uh, evangelist or a, a healer. We've seen him do miraculous things. He doesn't allow us to puff him up. He allows it to serve in the way God has gifted him, but also to be served himself. It's a great shame when pastors set themselves up as professionals. They're experts. One of my least favourite quotes that I've heard was, I've finished a Master of Divinity, that must make me an expert on God. That was from a pastor, which I think it is a shame that people make these claims. In Paul, Paul's life, and the, the example that we get from here, is that yes, there are those who have great learning and understanding of God, that does not make them separate from the body, but a part of the body. And he wants to say, through these words, so that I, in verse 21, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychius, which I listened to a pronunciation on that over and over again this morning. I may still have it wrong. The beloved brother and faithful minister 
in the Lord will tell you everything. It's personal. It's personal. He, he's not saying, here's the wisdom that I need, here's the wisdom that you need, here's the knowledge that you need, now I'm done, I'm tapping out. No, there's a relationship here. And there's such a depth of relationship that he is going to send a brother, a beloved brother, to them. Someone he cares about, someone who is ministering with him to share how he is and his welfare. I want us to think about church and our ministries and events and programs can be great. But in events and programs that end up being just driven by numbers, lose the relationship in them. Christianity Explored and the Alpha Course can be incredible events that are around. But if we're so caught up on running with numbers, will you be there when there's only one? Will we run Christianity Explored or Alpha with one person? Sitting with them in their home or on the street as they explore the scriptures? Preaching from the front is a glorious ministry for people to be a part of, but would we uh, not just see the upfront ministry of declaring uh, truths, the, the, the pinnacle of ministry, but rather sitting with people through their struggles? You know, preaching on suffering is an incredible gift for someone to do, but would we sit with the person who suffers, look them in the eyes, and partially care for them in the scripture? You know, big young adults ministry, youth ministries, and children's ministries can be glorious, but what about when our church only has one child, or one teenager, or a few young adults? Are we willing to sit one-to-one with those people and impart wisdom? Jesus demonstrated that he cared for the individual, he cared for the one. So often he had this grand ministry and he was preaching to the crowd, but then we see in the Gospels those those glimpses where he goes off to the one, to the person on the side. Or we've got the great story, uh, parable of the lost sheep, going after the one. I think Paul, for all his knowledge and the amazing bigness of his ministry, he cared about the individual. If you just went, went through all his letters and read the individual names that he named, he knew them by name. Tychius he names here, elsewhere he names others. But Paul had a love for individual people, not just the bigness of ministry. I've been reading a book called The Imperfect Pastor. There's a man who had an enormous ministry that he came to realise was not as big as he thought, and he says this, Tell me, when did it happen that a life purpose to help ordinary people in their ordinary struggles to locate God become too small a thing? When did it become such a small thing or an insignificant thing to sit with the loss, the individual, and impart wisdom? As we look at the sending of Tychius to the church of Ephesus, we must see that Paul really cares about this guy. They've been on an incredible journey from Ephesus to Jerusalem. They've been through all sorts of struggles together, and now he's saying, my beloved brother, it's time for you to go and serve someone else. And he sends this dear brother to him who has been ministering to him, I'm, I'm sure has this mutual discipleship, 
and sends him off to the church to tell, not theology, he's already imparted theology to them, but to tell of his welfare, to share his relationship with him, to allow them to uh, hear about Paul's pain and suffering and maybe uh, the, the challenges or thoughts and struggles that he's been having in this time. If we think about the two titles that Paul gives this, this brother, he says, beloved brother and faithful minister. The first one, if we think a little bit about a beloved brother, he states that he cares for him, he's beloved, he's close to. And then brother, it's a family connection, so close that it's closer than blood. I've heard someone say, the spirit is thicker than blood. The family that we have here in church is as deep as a family that we are born into, if not deeper, because it runs through the Spirit. Now, churches everywhere, no matter how big or small your church is, will claim that they are family. And one of my great frustrations is the label family. But are we really going to live out family attributes? When we're suffering, when we're in need, who do we call? Our biological family or our church family? Now, there's nothing wrong with calling our biological family. That's a, that's a fine thing to do. But would we still call on the people in the church? Would we lean on them as well? We want to throw the tagline family around for all these different things. But genuinely, are we a family? You can join a gym these days and they say, join our family. And you get to pay to be in it. Not really a good family to be a part of. But would it, the church have characteristics, not just a slogan, hey, we are family, but characteristics of being family? The next line, the other title that he gives to Gis is faithful minister. A minister could be translated servant. We've definitely seen this throughout Ephesians where it uh, talks about being uh, humble. And we stated that the, 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 the great definition of a Christian, or if we had only two words to summarise Christian, we would say, humble servant. If you only had two words, I don't know what two words you would choose, but humble servant seems a, a pretty good description. That we would be uh, uh, humbly willing to serve one another. But... Have you ever thought that humility also means being vulnerable enough to, to be served as well? If we're going to be humble servants, there's sometimes a pride that can get in the way of us being served. I always want to be the giver. I always want to be the strong one. I always want to impart wisdom. But are we willing to be low enough to be served as well? Are we willing to have that humble tagline first? So that when someone offers to shout us, or someone offers to speak words of wisdom into us, or someone wants to comfort us in prayer, are we okay with being in that position? Paul certainly was. If we just remember last week, he states that we need to be praying for him. Verse 19, pray all times for the saints. Now that's 18. Verse 19, pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel. And 2 Corinthians 12, about weakness. 
He shares about his weakness, that God's power is perfected in weakness. I think in Paul sending Tychius to the church of Ephesus, he's stating a vulnerability. I'll share of my welfare. You'll hear about my concern. You'll hear about my suffering. Paul is allowing the church in to serve him and having a humility, a humble servanthood about him that says, I'll serve you, but I also need the church to serve me as well. For he is just a member of the body. I think the second thought that could come from uh, looking at Paul sending tickets to the believers to care for them is that the man in chains, the man suffering, is willing to comfort others. Sometimes when we're in our suffering, and it's, it's quite hard when we're going through trials, but to think outside of ourselves, sometimes it feels like our suffering and our pain is the only pain that anyone, uh, the, the, the greatest pain that anyone has experienced. But we see this man who is in chains, still thinking about other people, still concerned about the churches that he's planted, individuals that he has upon his mind, the relationships that he has made. In the midst of our trials and our pain, in the midst of our suffering, do we think outside of ourselves? Are we able to still get alongside someone and serve them and see their pain as real? We don't even need to have to, we don't have to have wisdom. We can just share the experience of being loved, share the experience of suffering together. As we see Paul wrap this this book, this letter up, he first starts by saying, here's my my relationship with you, my concern for you, I want you to know how I'm doing, I want you to know my love for you. And then he goes on to remind them of their love in Christ, their peace in Christ, and he wraps it up with a benediction, which all points to a love for Christ, produces a love for his church. There's no other way. Christ came to die for his church. Christ didn't come just for you as an individual, although he saved you, praise God, but he came for his church. So to be a lone Christian and not and, and to say, I love Christ, but I don't love the church, is actually going against Scripture. 1 John 4 clearly tells us in the Scriptures if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. A love for Christ produces in us a love for the church, which we'll see as we unpack these last few verses. Verse 23. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we see in a lot of Paul's letters, he opens and closes his letters with grace and peace. But it's not his grace and peace. He says, from God the Father. Peace from God the Father. Grace from God the Father. He's doing his job. His job, as he stated before in the the last few verses, that he is an ambassador. In verse 20, I am an ambassador in chains. An ambassador is representing someone else. And Paul is doing his job by representing Christ. He's not giving over his peace and love, but rather his God's peace with love from the Father. So he's imparting to the church peace and love. Now for us, 
maybe peace isn't a big deal. We don't, we don't feel like we're at war at the moment in Australia. Uh, life doesn't, to me, feel like it's hostile at all times. So peace isn't that great a deal. But if we think back to the Old Testament and the Israelites for a moment, they were always longing for peace. As we read through their sort of story and think about their journey, they experienced uh, hostile nations. The Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. We could go on and on and on about all these names. And what they longed for was peace. They wanted a place of peace. They wanted to find peace. But also, not just peace with the nations, peace with God. The peace with God couldn't be found because they were sinful. But in Christ, we have found peace. So when Paul says, peace to you from God, or peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God, we actually are recalling the peace that we have with God. He draws us back to Ephesians 1 again, that beautiful one long sentence of the faith that we have. The the, uh, the the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that He chose us before the foundations of the world to be adopted as sons. We are redeemed through the blood of Christ. We have redemption. This beautiful description that goes on and on of His love. So God's love in choosing and saving a people for Him, which means now we have peace with God. We're reconciled to Him. We're not living wayward anymore. We don't have to earn His salvation. We don't have to do good deeds to appease Him. He's appeased. Christ's death appeased Him. It was sufficient. Peace to the brothers. And love with faith from God. The first one, reminding the church that in our new identity, in Christ, we are now at peace with God. And that is a good, good thing. And love with faith in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Along with peace, we have grace, which brings along with it love and faith. As we think through love and faith from God the Father, we have to remember that our faith is a gift from God. The reason we can believe in God is because God gave us the ability to believe in Him. We saw that in Ephesians 2, 9, earlier in the year. But what we see about this love and faith from God is that a love and faith, that, or a love, a faith that comes from God produces in us a love for Him and a love for people. We see that in just a few verses preceding where Paul sends Tychius to the church. Our love that is given to us so freely from God the Father, must produce a love in us. We, we can see it because Paul clearly didn't love the church. Remember when he was Saul? He wasn't loving the church. Now he's sending someone to the church to care for them, to tell them about his welfare. So what we see in the Gospel is that the things we once loved or hated change. We loved our sin, and we hated God, now we hate our sin and we love God. And what follows is that we love the church. It's obvious in chapters 
uh, end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Paul is stating that you're no longer Jew or Gentile, but now one in Christ. It doesn't matter what you were by flesh, it doesn't matter what your origin was by flesh. We, we may have hated a whole race like the Jews hated the Gentiles, or vice versa. But we don't anymore because Christ's love has come into us and that overflows to our, to our brothers and sisters. Whether they were the ones we once hated, whether, the ones they were the, whether they were the ones that we were put up against in society, like the Jews and Gentiles were, put against one another. Now it comes down to love. So the love that we receive from God the Father through faith, we now give to one another. Sometimes we don't feel this to be true. I think it's often that we can look at the church and base our experiences, or one of the dangers is that we interpret things through our experiences rather than what the scriptures say. So we're in the church for a few years, we, we get hurt a little, people cheat us, uh, offend us, people maybe are rude to us or unkind, yes that can happen in the church, maybe I might even be rude to you and unkind, which I repent, please rebuke me if I am. And we see that in, in life and we experience that and we go, the church isn't for me. The church isn't for me. But if you are saved by Christ, the church is for you. You are part of the church. You're the body of Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. And it's a good reminder, and I was reminded by a brother this week who sent me a quote about the church. And it's a good reminder to, to understand what, what Scripture says. And here's just a quote and a thought from Scripture. The church isn't perfect, but she will be. The church isn't unified, but she will be. The church isn't always right, but she will be. What a beautiful day that will be. It's a good reminder to think, yeah, the scriptures don't say that the church is perfect. In fact, the reason we have the letters in the scripture is because the church is a mess. And the biggest mess is the Corinthian church. As we look back through the letters, we see Paul is writing to correct the churches, to correct their error in theology, to correct some of their ways of life, to remind them that if you are in Christ, your life has changed. And that's why we gain so much of the New Testament, because the church is not yet perfect, but she will be. So rather than basing it on our experiences, and as you experience church life, whether you're new to church or you've been a part of it for decades, don't base it on your experience, but rather read theology, read scripture, and understand what the Bible is saying about the church. She's not perfect, but she will be. She'll be clothed in white, Revelation says, spotless white, a multitude that no one can count, and they will all be singing praise to the Lamb. That's what the scriptures say. Our experience might say otherwise. Our experience might say that this is a terrible place to be. But if we are in true community, and rather than sitting and harboring our hurt and our pain, we go to a brother or a sister and confess our weaknesses and correct them, as the Scriptures tell us to. Go to your brother once one if they have sinned against you and correct them. Or in 2 Timothy 4, where it says, Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience. 
That's discipleship. If there's no rebuke and correction in your life, you're probably not being discipled. So as we walk through the journey of being together in the church, we find that yes, it is hard and messy, but the promise is that it will be made new. We don't want to push against the church and push away from it. If we are redeemed in Christ, we love the church. Verse 24. Grace be with all who are our Lord. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And the benediction, the summary that Paul comes to wrap up his letter, he almost brings in a new encouragement. Because we haven't seen love incorruptible anywhere in this letter, but we have seen stand firm in the faith. We have seen persevere. We have seen love one another. We have seen put on love or put on Christ. So when we bring those things together, all he is saying here is love Christ or have a love for Christ that is undying. Love Christ forever. Endure in love. Stay firm in love. The love of Christ that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is not a passing fad or a romantic infatuation, but it is an enduring and abiding love that perseveres. When Christ's love comes into our hearts, it is a promise in Scripture that He will keep us. We may wander, we may be prone to wander, we may wander off at times and fall in love with other things, but His promise is that He Himself will draw us back. But did this church remember that? Because if we turn to Revelation 2, and we've touched on this so many times throughout this letter, Revelation 2, 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be quite false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. It all sounds pretty good at this point. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The church to Ephesus is reminded in their last two words to have a love that is incorruptible. And then Jesus says to them, you've lost your first love. And I can imagine if they've lost their first love for Christ, how on earth could they love earthly beings, sinful brothers and sisters? This condemnation that Jesus brings upon the church, this, this call to repentance is to love. It sounds to me like they have good theology. They can tell who's a false prophet. They bear for God's name. They're suffering persecution, it sounds, but there's this like a lack of love for the Lord. Just a bit numb and apathetic towards worship and adoration of Christ. 
in years to come, or in a year to come, will our love be incorruptible? Will the love that we have, or will our love be seen in our love for the bride? Will the love that you have for Christ, that incorruptible love, that undying love that you have for Christ, be seen in the way you love the bride of Christ, one another? Will you be more in love with Christ when you leave here than when you start? Share that that's our vision. Mind Grace's vision for our ministry that when we finish up, we will be more in love with Jesus than when we started. I'm not burning out. It's that simple. We're not burning out. And my hope for you is that whether you're here for a week or for the next 30 years, that your love for Christ will be more when you leave and when you start. And that that will flow into the way you love one another. Let's pray. Oh, how you love us, Lord. A love that we cannot comprehend. A love that leaves heaven and humbles itself to become like the creation. A love that goes to the cross for our sin and defeats our enemy. Death, sin, and the devil. Lord, you made for yourself the people whom you care about. Would we be reminded, Lord, that you made us a people, not an individual, a people. That the love that you have shown us would flow into the way we relate to one another. That family would not be our tagline, but the way we live. Leaning on each other. Would each of us always, no matter how high we rise in this world, always be humble servants, vulnerable enough to be served and willing enough to serve each other? We love you, Lord. We give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.